This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Speak truth. Speak truth. You're listening to the And Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. Which you know good, Ann Camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. But I have a surprise for you today. It's not just me and Christopher Butler here. We have an old friend that came back. You may know him. Uh, he's Buffalo's finest, Italian food chef extraordinaire. The quintessential girl dad, the former Obama administration official, Iron Michael Ware, has decided to join us today in this conversation. So it feels good to have the gang back together. Chris, how are you doing? And then we're going to see how Michael's doing. I am doing really, really well, man. I'm excited to to do this. This is is awesome. Yeah, this is good stuff. Michael, welcome back, brother. It's so good to be back. Uh, Good to be with you. Uh, gentlemen, and and looking forward to our conversation. But uh, uh, you, you know, I gotta say, it's been um, uh, there are five people, and I heard from all five who have uh, seen a major vacuum in this show since I left, and that is y'all don't talk about the Buffalo Bills nearly <laughs> enough, and and so that's the that's the main thing I need to bring, which is. You know, we won our first preseason game, and that's just the beginning, gentlemen. So uh, buckle up, get ready. This is the Super Bowl <laughs> season. Uh, and, and that's my main contribution here, like it was before. So <laughs> glad to be with you. <laughs> yeah, we have certainly fallen off in that regard. I will I will openly admit that, man. But I'm going to give a shout-out to the Buffalo Bills on that huge – I mean, that's big. That first – you know, that, that, that first preseason game is, is always huge for the season. It really, my understanding, if you, if you win that first preseason game, you're almost a shoe-in for the Super Bowl. So, hey, man, we're going to give a shout-out to the Buffalo Bills on that and make sure that we try to cover that a little more. We'll, we'll mention them here, here and there. But something tells me you'll be back a few more times. So we have a lot of stuff to cover today. You, you guys heard everything that's going on with, with, uh, in Afghanistan one of the reasons that we brought Michael back on is this something, you know, when it comes to foreign policy, he does a good job of talking about that also. And so we thought it'd be valuable to have him in this conversation. So this is a real conversation. There's a lot going on. There's lives at stake, a huge policy move. And there's a lot of criticism and, and, and a lot of talk going around about it. So as usual, and camp, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian, let's try that for once. Let me start by saying this. Visuals are powerful. Optics can capture people's attention and imagination. It can shape their perspectives and it can change the course of history. We only have to go so far back as even something like the civil rights movement, where we can see how optics strengthened, considerably strengthened the civil rights movement when Northerners actually saw Emmett Till in his ca- in his casket and then saw young people being attacked by dogs and fire hoses. It's one thing to hear about what's going on, but it's quite another to actually see it in vivid detail. It often leaves a larger impression. Optics are especially powerful when they perfectly match a certain narrative. Narratives are important, but when a narrative aligns with with breathtaking optics, it's clear it's really hard to make people unsee what they saw. It becomes really difficult to change the narrative once people have tied it to a very strong visual. Well, 
Most of us saw the video of Afghans crowded around, chasing and desperately clinging to a U.S. Air Force jet as it rolled down the run- one runway trying to depart the Kabul airport. The Afghans were trying to get out of the country after American troops withdrew. Their president fled and the Taliban had taken over the country. A later video appears to show a couple of those Afghans falling to their death after the plane was in the air. The narrative coming from critics of the U.S. withdrawal is that this effort was rushed, irresponsible and basically a cruel abandonment of Afghan people. Those optics, if we're going to be honest, regardless of which side that you take, those optics spoke louder than a 200 word essay or even a presidential bully pulpit speech on the subject. It doesn't bide well for the Biden administration. The optics don't. And yet there's still more to the story, regardless of what side you're on. The visuals are awful. They matter. But they can't be the end of the conversation. We can't reduce this to this very complex issue to a 30 second video. That's not to say that the Biden administration was right. That's not to say that once we dig a little bit deeper past the surface, past the surface of these optics, that they're going to look better. They may look worse. But it's only to say that the conversation, the debate. Cannot end there. Not if we're going to be thorough, not if we're going to be thoughtful. The Afghanistan war was triggered by the September 11th attacks in 2001. The United States subsequently took the Taliban out of power. But our main target was Al Qaeda, who I believe most uh, went into Pakistan. And Michael can correct me on that if I'm wrong. We fought against the Taliban. We subsequently fought against the Taliban military and tried to rebuild the Afghanistan government to train their police and their military to eventually fight for themselves. We were in Afghanistan for 20 years. According to Forbes, we spent over $2 trillion there. It was costing us $300 million a day. And they, they broke this down in Forbes. They said that's 50000 for each of Afghanistan's 40 million people. In other words, as, as Forbes put it, Uncle Sam has spent more keeping the Taliban at bay than the net worths of Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, and the 30 richest billionaires in America combined. $800 billion went to direct war fighting costs. $85 billion to train the vanquished Afghan army, which folded in weeks. U.S. taxpayers have been giving Afghan soldiers $750 million a year in payroll. All told, Brown University's cost of war project estimates that the total, the exact number of how much we spent was $2.26 trillion in Afghanistan. That's pricey. Now, That's a little bit of the background. Michael, tell me if there's anything I missed or what you would add to that history and just the optics of what we see. Yeah. So, so that's a really good, good and helpful overview. I mean, I have a feeling as this conversation goes on, we're going to keep going back to various sort of factors that were involved here. I mean, right. Cause the, the fact of the matter is, you know, we're, we're in a region of the world that has history. That's, uh, Millennia. <laughs> uh, we uh, we're in a region of the world where uh, where you know there are so many different ways to tell the history. Do you start on nine eleven? Do you start in the Cold War? Do you start uh, in colonialism uh, of uh, previous centuries? It, it, it's it's just it's just um, history is so bound up with everything that is going on and it's it's hard to tell uh, which what is most relevant what is operating when and so so that that's just you know the first thing um i, I guess i'll just pull out a, a few aspects here so right so there's been this political argument that's been building 
and that we have to be honest about. It's what the American people have voted for in three straight, uh, well, really four straight presidential elections. Obama, Trump, uh, Biden were all elected on the idea that this juxtapositioning of the investments that we're making in Afghanistan mean that we're not investing at home. So, you know, get out of Afghanistan, we could invest more at home. And that that argument has won over and over and over again. So, so um, but you talk to people like Paul Miller, who's a former NSC staffer um, under both Obama um, and I think Bush. Um, and he says, well, the, the costs are certainly not anything to sneeze at over the long period of time, but um, you know, over the last several years, the costs have actually become manageable. Uh, the, the status quo, and I'm paraphrasing Paul here. I'm trying to be, uh, but but he he would say that you know the the, the costs were sustainable uh, where where they were, uh, let's say in the last in the last three five years. So 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 that's so that's I guess something that's that's notable. The the other just thing I'll, I'll pull up, which I did not. Uh, no, until last week or so, is, um, or I guess I just wasn't wasn't as cognizant of it as I should have been in in this context, which is uh, the Taliban had already regained fifty percent of the territory in Afghanistan by the time Trump came into office. That's that's my understanding, and so so this so the. the it has been shocking to the Biden administration, at least, and they, they've admitted as much how quickly the Taliban uh, got to Kabul, got to the capital. But what, what I was not aware of is that with our troop presence, uh, and, and at the start of Trump's time, we had many more troops than the 2,500 that we had uh, uh, under, under Biden um, uh, and at the end of the Trump administration, uh, the Taliban was already sort of inserting itself and asserting itself in Afghanistan. So, 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 um, so I, I think that's important to understand about the dynamics there. As you said, Justin, this is just such an extremely complicated discussion. And I've been having internal dialogues with myself. And as soon as I think that I won the argument with myself, uh, another sort of fact or another way of looking at it will encroach itself in my mind and I'll go, oh well, maybe maybe the maybe the maybe we shouldn't have drawn down troops. Or oh, okay, I guess we were right to draw down troops. So I'm I'm looking to finally having a conversation with others and seeing maybe if we could get a, a bit further or at least help help each other see see this thing a bit more clearly. That's so important. Um having that internal dialogue, which I've been having too, right? And one thing I've noticed about this group is we haven't made a lot of strident comments about Afghanistan on social media, not because we haven't been thinking about it, because but because I think we understand the complexities of what's going on. And the knee jerk reaction is not the one you just want to you just want to run with. I think it's a good discipline, as Michael said, to have that internal dialogue about complicated issues before you make these definitive public statements. Right. And we don't always see that very some very good points that that, Chris, that Michael made. And then I'll go on to Chris is it is hard to hard to know where to begin, right? You can begin on September 11th, but there was a lot of prologue that led up to September uh, 11th too. And you can go on and on and talk about that dynamics of culture and religion and all this other stuff uh, to really try to f- figure out and get to the bottom of, of what's going on here. The other part that you got to acknowledge is the people voted for this over and over. Obama, Trump, Biden, they ran on this stuff. So anybody kind of acting like this came out of nowhere, they weren't expecting it. You almost get the feeling that it was like, how could this? No, this has been debated over and over in presidential debates and and, and on and on. This, this conversation has been had. Doesn't mean that it's the right decision, but it does mean that it's been a conversation that the pe- the American people have considered. Um, that's also not the end of the conversation, but a very important part of the conversation. I'm glad Michael pointed that out. Chris, what are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, I, I think on, on context, and, and like Michael said, we're probably going to keep talking about various parts of uh, history when it comes to uh, Afghanistan. Uh, I think before we go further in this conversation, uh, probably I think it's important to say uh, sort of along the lines of what you were just saying, Justin, that 
we have been voting on this. We have been uh, thinking about this. And one of the takes that I've seen on social media uh, is sort of this idea that, well, you shouldn't talk about this at all if you're not some kind of like advanced geopolitical expert. Uh, and I don't think that is quite right. Uh, like there is uh, uh, some some a large amount of virtue uh, in spending time thinking about it, but I don't think anything that has happened is because Americans have been too engaged in thinking about foreign policy, right? Like uh, this idea that the the regular citizen uh, shouldn't think about this or that common thought is invalid in this conversation, I think is completely wrong. And I think our listeners, uh, you know, I, I want to challenge us to dig into this, read some stuff, think about it. Uh, you're a citizen of the United States. You're a, a voter, uh, a resident. Uh, you have a part to play in a in a self-governing people. Uh, so it's important uh, to dig into this, even if you're not like, you know, the world's greatest foreign policy expert. Yeah, I, I think that's an excellent point. I mean, we wouldn't be having this conversation if you had to be some world class geopolitical, you know, strategist or, or uh, commentator analyst in order to have these conversations. Now, we, you certainly need to do your homework, right? You certainly need to read some books, read some articles and, and stay close to it. But it's, it's a conversation that needs to happen. One of the things that, I, you know, that I think we have to talk about and we'll take a break after we address this very quickly is I'm not, you know, I generally defer quite a bit to military experts, though, when it comes to this stuff, because I know there's intel that we don't have. There's a lot of stuff that goes on. So I generally say, hey, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt because I don't know everything that's going on with this. One of the issues that I have, though is that our military experts continually came out <laughs> and said, we're so close. The Afghan military, we just need a couple more dollars, a couple more years. They're ready to go. We're really chaining them. This is coming along. And then very quickly, they just dissolve. I mean, just dissolve. And, you know, we're, I'm not going to, you know, we're, I'm not going to get in the beta where, they're, where they, they cowered or what. That's not my point. The point is they weren't ready. That they weren't, you know, they weren't ready to fight and the Taliban had, had moved very quickly and, and just demolished that. What do we take from those conversations, especially in view? And this is one of the things that I think some of the kind of neoconservatives, folks who are really going hard against this withdrawal, I think they have to acknowledge you can't take this out of context of Iraq either and how people think about the mistakes made there and those connections there. And then when we have our military, some of our military guys Almost, it seems like they were misleading us about exactly where we were on this, or maybe they didn't see it, or maybe you know, maybe they miscalculated. Where do we take that, and how should Americans respond to to that lack of intelligence, right? Like to that to that miscalculation, uh, Michael? Yeah. So, uh, so there was uh, in 2019, the Washington Post uh, released a, a trove of. A research emails communications that showed, uh, unfortunately, Justin, to your point, that American military leaders and political leaders were communicating something publicly about the progress that was being made in Afghanistan that they knew was not an accurate reflection of what was actually happening. And so, um, it you know, this is where we get to conversations about Trust in institutions. Uh, I'm the same as you, Justin, which is I defer to intelligence and national security. I mean, I, I, I just love, I mean, I, I understand seeing the images and being so shocked and, and having the, 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 uh, the impulse that th this isn't right. This can't be right. And that's like a human impulse. That's the impulse and reaction I had yesterday. On the other hand, I wonder how many of the people tweeting yesterday and, and how many of the people that had very strong opinions um, have any experience getting tens of thousands of people out of a war zone. <laughs> you know, like these are these are just um, logistical, like the Department of Defense is a planning organization of, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of employees who have spent their lives thinking about this. Like you just have to defer to them. At, at, at some point, it was reported that Department of Defense advised uh, the, the Biden White House that uh, a speedy withdrawal is a safe withdrawal. Um, and so, like, is that right? Like, I, 
I don't know, but Department of Defense seems seems like they would. It seems like you'd want to take their word seriously. And for all the people who are, you know, are you who are usually, you know, saying, you know, we ought, we ought to listen to our generals. Well, it sounds like uh, unless some further reporting comes out that um, it's clear the generals oppose the drawdown of forces, um, but we have a we have a civilian led military, so that's the president's decision to make. But um, unless some further reporting comes out. I don't think Biden or someone in the White House was micromanaging sort of uh, the 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 logistics of what happened with the drawdown. And so, yeah, I mean, you just you just uh, uh, I don't have the expertise to to critique in a minute fashion exactly how the drawdown should have happened. Some people do, and they they should do that. That being said, you really do lose confidence. Not just when the military or when political folks in, in power get something wrong, but but when it's shown that they were misleading the American people about it. I mean, this is the Pentagon Papers. I, I think there is like a Vietnam uh, war on terror thing that's happening. And sometimes people make that to be more than it is. And sometimes people are trying to layer the two on top of each other when they don't absolutely fit. But there is this crisis of trust. There is this hubris that sort of went into both um, that I think the American people that, you know, we're seeing history replay itself in some ways uh, there. And and the military is going to have to do a lot and our political officials are going to have to do a lot to restore trust so so that we can defer to them on, on these kinds of situations. Yeah. Chris, what do you think? I mean, about what is amounts to an intelligence failure in one way or another, right? Either they didn't have the right information or they were kind of misleading. Well, something happened to where there was some disconnect. What do we make of that as American people and how do we restore that trust? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm probably a little bit less prone to uh, exactly defer to military and intelligence leadership. Certainly those folks need to be at the table, but I think you know, we very much on purpose have a civilian led military and the uh, these decisions, I would like to be able to put trust in elected leaders uh, to listen to all of the intelligence uh, and then make decisions uh, in the broader context that those elected leaders and civilian leaders uh, have to pay attention to uh, that, that really the military leaders don't necessarily have to. Right. Uh, mm. their, their job is much more right. specialized, I, I think, is one of the reasons why in this present moment, one of the factors that we have to pay attention to is that this particular commander in chief is different from the previous two and that he walks into this role. And, and listen, there, there are plenty of things that I take issue with the Biden administration. But here's a guy who walks into this role with. Heavy, heavy experience. I mean, if, if not equal to folks in, the, in in military leadership, I mean, certainly comparable. He's sat in Senate intelligence briefings for decades. He was for nearly a decade vice president of the United States, had this conversation about getting out of Afghanistan. I think that there is as much sort of benefit of the doubt that we should give to uh, military leaders I think there's a, a lot of benefit of the doubt that we have to give to this president uh, who comes into this office with, I mean, you, you can't even compare the experience that he comes into office with to the previous two presidents. Uh, and that is why I think you did have a different conversation between the president uh, and the generals. And credence has to be given to both sides in that conversation because you don't have a guy walking into this who hasn't been around the block a few times. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you know, you do have, is it, is it true that statement was made by Robert Gates basically saying that Joe Biden has been wrong on all this stuff for the last 40 years? Is that, is that confirmed? So yeah, we, we, we have some, we have some military guys uh, going up against what the president's saying. And, and we, you know, we, we have to evaluate all that stuff. I think my main point, and we're going to go on to the next, we'll take a break and go to the next segment. My main point is this, you don't have to look away from the optics, right? Like they're important. They matter. They're real. Like this isn't some somebody made up. This is real. People are hurting and the optics, the visuals show you that. Just don't stop the conversation there because there's a lot more to talk about. And we're going to continue this conversation after a quick break. We'll be back. 
And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Now, just a month ago, uh, Biden explicitly, and this is what we were kind of getting in before, Biden, Biden explicitly told Americans that it was unlikely that the Taliban would take over Afghanistan. And he sounded pretty confident, if not strident in that position. Uh, I think we can all agree that he was absolutely wrong. This also goes again into the military leaders telling us how far down the road the Afghan troops were and that not being the case, whether it be, you know, emotional, psychological or whether it just be other type of practical preparation things. They weren't where they needed to be. You also have a president who fled uh, just just a lot of a lot of things going on here that that make it very tough. The other thing I think we have. Well, we don't have to agree on the other thing I think we really need to discuss and we may may agree or not. Is this transition? Is not getting some of these evacuees out, uh, whether they be translators and uh, Americans and so on? You got this list of folks who are saying, man, could we have gotten them out before all this stuff happened? Um, you know, to, to give the symbol of this, could the plane have not taken off while the people were still hanging on to it? Right. Um, these are conversations that we have to have in this larger uh, discussion. And when then we get this, you know, we get Biden's speech, which a lot of people, the you know, folks who really wanted to get out, loved the speech. Folks who really wanted to stay uh, didn't like the speech at all. Right. And said, look, he's kind of pawning off on other people. I thought he laid out what the initial objectives of going into Afghanistan were. I thought he did a really good job at the beginning on saying, hey, this is why we went. We accomplished that. Now it's time to get out. The part that was more questionable and where he's taken a lot of heat, and I think maybe um, understandably so, is the role that he kind of put on the Afghan troops, the role that he put on you know other folks saying, hey, the buck stops with me, but they didn't do this and this didn't happen and all this other stuff. So people said that, you know, some people thought there was some equivocation in taking responsibility, but then not really taking responsibility. Perhaps that's just what comes with a very complicated situation. Uh, Michael and Chris, what, what are your thoughts on Biden's speech? And then generally, let's get let's talk about how we move forward, especially in view of refugees, folks who need to be evacuated and things of that nature. Yeah, I, I appreciated uh, the speech first and the fact that he came out and made it. Um, I think throughout the day yesterday, there was some desire for for that kind of leadership from the president to step forward and say, here's what we did. And here's why we did it. And here's what I think about um, where we are going. Uh, you know, Michael said it earlier. I'm, I'm not. I don't feel uh, equipped to, to, to thoroughly critique the uh, the logistics of a military withdrawal from a war zone. Um, that's that's certainly not my area of expertise. Uh, I, I do think if, if I try to put myself in the position of a civilian leader uh, in this moment, uh, I, I, I think about the story that's told an old couple uh, sitting there for dinner and the cat throughout the whole dinner uh, is cleaning herself. Uh, and toward the end of the dinner, uh, the old man says to his wife, whatever was there is either gone forever or is there to stay. Um and as a civilian leader, I don't know if I could go with the idea that give me three more months or six more months or some kind of more months and it's going to be drastically, drastically better. Um, I think you have to put it in the hands of uh, the folks who do this type of work uh, and ask them to to get out. And, and then you do have to step forward and own some of those optics, uh, which, you know, I, I, I think you saw the president try to do, um, you know, from here, you know, this morning, uh, you know, there are flights being uh, resumed to trying to get folks out. Uh, certainly somebody somewhere should have, uh, you know, I don't know if we need to start sending PR guys with the military folks uh, because, you know, you, you can't uh, allow the plane to take off with people hanging from it, um, especially in this, this uh, uh, sort of world where everybody, uh, is a is a reporter, um, but you but know, they, it, but they did they did make some changes to the plan. I mean, as soon as the, the pushback got there, you saw there were some significant changes to how they were going to get out and what they were going to do. 
isn't that somewhat of an indication that maybe it wasn't as 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 thoughtful of a, of a plan as it needed to be, or is that just kind of what happened? Again, when it comes to the details of the logistics of the withdrawal, I don't know that that I feel equipped to say that 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 means that it wasn't as thoughtful as it could be. Maybe it was as thoughtful as it could be before the thing, you know, uh, uh, goes as as poorly as it did. Um, you know, who 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 knows? And and again, maybe there's somebody out there who is supposed to know, but who really knows? In, in an ironclad way, what is going to unfold when after 20 years uh, you withdraw from a war zone? I don't know that there's somebody who can, uh, in an ironclad fashion, um, predict that. And again, th- this is not to absolve anybody of, of, uh, of responsibility. I think a lot of things need to be thought through and uh, critically looked over. I do think that in a moment like this, uh, you you want to give incredible benefit of the doubt, incredible amounts of, of of grace to the folks who are trying to execute something that, like we said at the top of the show, everybody wanted. We voted this, you know, three consecutive presidential elections is, is what people wanted to see. Uh, it's what this president said that he was going to do and unlike the previous two is actually doing it um is it going perfectly no but i think tremendous amounts of of benefit of the doubt and and grace uh, are are in order because this is something that every that folks wanted to see i mean i'm talking about the the body politic the the general population wanted to see uh and is a really, really hard thing to do. And I, and, and I think for all of the, the mistakes that we can point out, uh, I would suggest that it probably takes a, a bit of courage on this one to, to state this uh, objective and to move forward with it in this way. So, you know, I think we should be learning from it. I don't think we should be taking this as a moment to like beat folks down. That's an interesting question. And maybe a, a larger conversation that we won't have today is the tension between grace and accountability. Uh, because I think even when you're doing something that's this large and, uh, you know, this big of a move after after 20 years to say that we should only give grace and not hold you accountable for possibly leaving. I mean, if you listen to what some people say, possibly leaving folks stranded uh, in ways that could have been preventable. And, and that's kind of what I'm getting at. I think there are some things that are in a fair argument were preventable that we saw happen yesterday and the days before that necessarily weren't taken care of. Is that a moment for grace or is that a moment for accountability? Uh, That's a question we have to answer. I think accountability has to play some role in here, but I I see what you're saying too, Chris. These are, these are not, you don't just push a button. And this is what I try to tell my friends who don't have never been in the middle of real tough political decisions. You don't just push a button and have a perfect transition and, and a, you know, and, and leave a country like that in a situation like that perfectly. And everything just goes exactly how you wanted it to. It's a lot more complicated than that. It's tough. And I give Biden some credit. There's never going to be a good moment for withdrawal from something like this. It's never going to be pretty optics. Right. Not if not, not if we're being real about it. But the question still remains, at what point you still have to do the job. You still are getting paid to do the job. You have the, the experts to do the job. There still has to be a level of accountability within that. Where that balance is, I think we just have to decide. Michael, what what, what are your thoughts just on the withdrawal, what we do with the refugees? Where do we go from here? And and where does this grace and and accountability land? Biden's speech was was striking. Um, Much of it pulled from uh, earlier releases and, and talks he's given on the subject and that bothers some people for me. Um, if he still thinks what he said was true and if his reasoning is still true uh, today as it was a month ago or two months ago, um, believe me, after our last president, I'm, I'm happy for some consistency in, in, in reasoning, even if I uh, like you could actually like hold on to it. I was struck by how narrowly tailored his speech was to our national interest and that his decision-making was based on our national interest. And we accomplished the objective 
um, and we were losing resources. We were putting troops at risk, which is something to be taken seriously. I, I may say something about that in a bit, but um, it was about the national interest. Now, now he said human rights is at the center of our foreign policy. But but when he talks about drawing down troops in Afghanistan, he's, he says this is about our national interest. Well, how can human rights be at the center of your foreign policy if 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 they weren't at the center or even sort of a couple rungs out, it seems, from this decision? So there were there were these, you know, we're going to be calling on Afghanistan. We're, we're going to rally the international community. We're going to economically sanction Afghanistan. Uh, which, uh, you know, my, my assumption is Afghanistan isn't doing too well economically uh, now in the first place. So I don't know what kind of I don't know if economic sanctions are going to uh, undermine the Taliban or, or empower them. Um, here's here's my thought. So, so again, like I've said, I, I've been torn on this. I have typically been leaned interventionist. I've typically sided with Hillary Clinton over Joe Biden in this debate. Hillary Clinton uh, in March went to Council on Foreign Relations and expressed her concern with the drawdown for some of the same reasons that we've seen uh, unfolding uh, over the last week. Um, and uh, part of my reason for that is um, I think if if you are opposed to military intervention generally, a reason for that has to be or should be, or the strongest case for that should be, is that when we do intervene militarily, especially in such a significant way, that we, we our national objectives are no longer the only thing that we have to keep in mind. We now own the situation. I mean, this is the Colin Powell pottery barn rule they said in relation to Iraq. He said, if you, if you break it, you own it. And I feel the same way here. We, we made a commitment to Afghanistan that was not constrained by a national objective, that was not constrained by uh, we're only willing to spend this much money or uh, uh, sacrifice this many troops. Now, obviously, those things have to be held in tension, but yeah, I, I can't help but feel uh, that the Afghan people, after we occupied that country for 20 years, ha- have a right to expect something from us have a right to expect that we're not going to turn them over to an oppressive regime. Now, right, then I get into the counter argument, which is exactly what Biden said, which is we spent trillions of dollars in that country. We we've trained, we gave them an air force. Like he didn't, it's important to, like he didn't say like we, we gave them a couple new planes. We, we polished things up real nice. No, they didn't have an air force before and America gave them an air force, like an entire branch. Um, and, and from Biden's perspective and from the perspective of much of the reporting out there, corruption, a lack of commitment, uh, to the cause, and uh, right, I say that knowing that many Afghans died in military service. But I'm just talking from the general, the the, the resources were not there to build a sustainable Afghan force that could have stood up to the Taliban, and that that wouldn't have been whatever the state of the Afghan force. Uh, it was doubtful that it would have been much better in a year or in five years. That we had spent 20 years sort of. And so you you end up back like at the same place. So, you know, uh, I think we should have stayed because we had a commitment to that country. Well, when can you get out? Well, I don't maybe the situation would have changed five, 10 years from now. But 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 that's why we were there for 20 years in the first place. So it's 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 a very, very difficult thing to 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 sift through. And and I, I just the last thing I'll say is like I um. I am cautious of, I think we have a violent culture and we have, I do think that there is a wantonness with the way that we talk about, sometimes with the way that we talk about military action as if these are pieces on a chessboard, um, that this is a button you press and, and everything moves. What I did appreciate about Biden's speech and about his approach this whole time was him asking the question, which we all should have to answer, which is like, would you send your grandson, would you send your daughter 
how would you feel if 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 they lost their life in Afghanistan at this point in time uh, would the would women's rights in Afghanistan uh be a sufficient cause for you to lose cuz that's we're talking about someone's son and someone's daughter someone's granddaughter and and I I do appreciate that Biden because his son served because of his his work with armed services that he doesn't lose sight of that that can't blind us to everything, but I'll, I'll stop there. But I, again, like there's just, there's just so many different, so many different factors uh, swooping in and out of this that um, that that it's it's uh, you know you think you have your arms wrapped around it, and then something else comes up, and and you think, oh gosh, maybe I'm not weighing that factor enough. Yeah. Chris, yeah, no, I I think that that that's exactly right because I mean you know it, you you think about all of those things, and, and certainly. Uh, there is, you know, this sort of idea that folks in Afghanistan should be able to expect something from us. I mean, for for me, thinking about the Christian missionaries uh, who yes. are in Afghanistan, uh, many of whom are uh, are stranded there right now. I mean, th- those are uh, big considerations. Uh, but one of the things that that Biden did in the speech that I don't know if he did it in the most artful fashion, but I, I think he was also trying to point to the fact that we've been there 20 years. We've spent $2 trillion. Uh, and uh, as, as as Michael mentioned earlier, we had already lost 50% of the country. Um, it, we, we were there. We were spending so much money. Uh, we had already spent so many lives. Uh, this this peace uh, that uh, the, the Trump administration had negotiated uh, was going to expire. Uh, that was going to uh, once again increase uh, uh, intense fighting and start costing more American lives and more American dollars. Um, and it, it's like all of those lives and all of that money, is it even, you know, significantly improving the state of things, right? So it's one thing if, if we're... Uh, you know, if we're looking at something, you know, closer to other projects that we see in the, in the Middle East, even a little bit in Iraq, where, you know, the money and the lives have, have been spent, um, but the situation is, 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 is improving. Uh, the, the democracy is, is sort of coming up to life uh, in the country. Do we even have that uh, testimony in, in Afghanistan? I think that the last 48 hours uh, show that that's a, a profound no. Uh, so it's like it, it's even worse for, I think, a president if, if you're looking at that and, and you're assessing that the stuff, you know, the the the, the real lives. I mean, my, my, my brother did uh, two tours in Afghanistan um, and, and, and was injured there. Uh, and, and when you have folks leave, like literally either losing their lives or leaving physical parts of themselves, um, you know, I, 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 it's very difficult. I mean, I, I don't. I think I'm with with both of, of you guys. That is, is very difficult, and you could, we could talk about this uh, all day. I've been talking about this with myself and others uh, for the last you know week, uh, and it's a very difficult thing to wade through. But you know, I'm also reminded that you know uh, American soldiers are also humans, um, and and and, yes. and their families are humans. Um, it's it's. It's weighty and it, and it's difficult. I, I think if folks listen to this podcast, take anything away. Um, it, it should be that we should be thinking about uh, uh, this stuff a lot more deeply before it reaches crisis situation. Um, I mean, we people talk about like the helicopter thing, but you know, we we didn't have control of the country. People were suffering. Uh, soldiers were dying. Military, you know, money was being spent for two decades, uh, and you know there have been plenty of people who have talked about this and advocated about it, but it hasn't hasn't been this uh, forward in our discourse uh, probably since we went in, um, and you know we we have to look at that. You know, I, I keep saying this. I've said this at least three times uh, this morning. I don't know why, but uh, as, as believers, we have to begin to understand how to read our scriptures, not only from the perspective of the governed, but also from the perspective of the governor. Uh, because as as members in a democracy, 
we've got some responsibility uh, for for all of this, what our government is doing. And, and, and we have to figure out how to be engaged maybe a little bit more. Yeah, you should be paying attention. You should be doing your homework, your due diligence, and you should be having those internal conversations to try to form an opinion on something that affects everybody. And then it affects everybody who's here and then our neighbors even even across the way. And so th- those are things that we we do have to focus in on. I'll, I'll give it to you, you uh, to uh, Michael, the human rights comment. Um, it's almost as if, you know, he was trying to form his the, the Biden doctrine on the human rights. And it just didn't fit <laughs> with the context of, of what was going on. So we'll, we'll be hearing a lot more about that speech. And I'm glad that he gave the speech. Because if he would have waited till Wednesday, as initially people were saying, yeah, he'll talk about it in a few days, that would have been disastrous. And uh, certainly glad that he decided to say something. We got one more quick segment where we're going to be talking about the governor, almost about to be former governor of New York and his rise and fall. We'll be back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. It is Justin Gibney, Pastor Christopher Butler, and our old friend, uh, Michael Ware, glad to have him back with us. We're going to talk very quickly about a resignation that I think, um, man, is, is is pretty big news. And one of the quotes that came out of this uh, resignation was, I didn't realize the extent to which the line has been redrawn. That was part of the resignation speech of soon to be former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Uh, This happened after an investigation found that the Democratic governor had kissed, groped or made unwelcome sexual advances to at least 11 women, including aides and a state trooper. Uh, It's uh, been made clear that he also intimidated some of the women who were coming forward, including uh, uh, smears and all kinds of things that went along with that. Uh, and so it's interesting to hear someone say, I didn't know the extent to which the line had been, been redrawn. I think he's referring to the Me Too movement and how it's kind of changed the dynamic of what's acceptable. But if you look closely at the actual investigation, what they found and, and when it's, you're talking about groping and grabbing women's breasts and all this kind of stuff, for him to make that kind of comment in a you know resignation, which wasn't at all a, a Mayakopa, uh, is very interesting and, and may tell us something about about how he got to this point. So New York state lawmakers were initially going to end the investigation and the impeachment process once the governor resigned. But they got a lot of pushback from the people, from the media, and they reversed that decision, it looks like. And so uh, they will continue on with the investigation and possibly with uh, the impeachment. This is one of, you know, Michael and Chris, this is one of the most significant rise and fall stories that we've seen in a while. I mean, Kuma was perhaps at the top of his game, at the top of his career during the COVID crisis. He was a lot of people were saying, hey, he needs to be our next president. He's handling this so much better than Trump. And really, it was about that comparison, right? It was about how Trump was kind of stumbling and bumbling. And then Kumo at least seemed more contained, more leader, you know, was was. Uh, showed more confidence and was actually addressing the real issues. At least that's how it seemed at the moment. And then we found out that he wasn't reporting COVID death numbers and he had made a terrible mistake, probably one of the worst mistakes that we we have seen during COVID in taking 
COVID patients out of hospitals and putting them into nursing homes by law. Um, And while all this was going on, he managed to write a book entitled American Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic. He wrote this book while the pandemic was still raging on and while he was hiding the numbers and all this other stuff was going on. Chris, what do we take from this episode with Andrew Kumo? And what does it say about leadership and kind of this, how we can juxtapose two leaders and maybe kind of uh, raise one up further than they should be? I mean, I actually uh, go back to a a phrase that I have, uh, I was going to say borrowed, but I can probably at this point say fully stolen from uh, from you, Justin, uh, about opposition-centered politics. Um, because that that's essentially what you have here. You you had uh, pretty much the whole sort of uh, media establishment, uh, a, a large segment of the political establishment, willing to uh, to overlook some things because it's not like these uh, accusations uh, just came out. You know, a few weeks ago when that report came from uh, New York's Attorney General. I mean, these things. Uh, were sort of ongoing, um, you know. Certainly, I think in a in a in a less polarized environment where you weren't looking for uh, this sort of uh, uh, counter narrative to Trump, uh, somebody would have raised a question about writing a book about how well you managed a crisis that is actually still ongoing, um, like. Somebody probably could have uh, would have raised a question about that. Um, w- people probably would have been much more forceful in their criticism of writing that book when it became apparent that a lot of the stuff that you wrote in the book was flat, not true. Um, and just all along the way, I think too many folks that I'm, I'm, I'm glad to say that is not true of the church politics podcast, uh, but a, a lot of folks just look the other way. Uh, and and didn't give the sort of uh, criticism and analysis that uh, that should have been given uh, much earlier. So that's the main takeaway. But I guess the other piece is that eventually, in in a lot of cases, stuff catches up with you um, yeah. because it it got to it got to be too much uh, when when this uh, investigation uh, came out. So. Yeah, I, I definitely think that the opposition-centered politics played a huge role. I mean, people were loving Kumo, and you you really couldn't. I mean, he was doing interviews with his brother, number one. So, of course, you're going to look better in that instance, not getting asked hard questions while thousands of people are dying. I mean, it's just like, what is going on here? And I think our media, you know, needs to take some responsibility for that, too. But you had folks with Kumo sexual shirts on, and, like, he was a star. And really only because they needed somebody to put up against Trump and say, look how stupid and dumb Trump is. We have the, this is our hero, right? Going against him. Uh, my, uh, uh, Iron Michael, which I'm, I'm going to try to make that stick. W- what do you think, <laughs> man? What, what are your thoughts on that? Hey, I, so I, I think everything that's been said is, has, has, uh, is, is good and, and spot on. I mean, the other political factor here is that progressives in New York hated Cuomo. And so, um, you, you know, you do get a sense that, and, you know, I'm not saying this based on sort of reporting, but j- just looking at the timeline of events, you know, New York had a uh, New York City had a mayoral race in which progressives had a number of champions and kind of like the Democratic primary. Uh, they all fell to Eric Adams, uh, who was considered to be more moderate in the New York context. It's important to understand. so. Uh, one of the ways Cuomo was successful as a governor was that he had made this arrangement with uh, Republicans in the state Senate that basically he wouldn't go after them and that he wouldn't sign legislation unless uh, like uh, uh, Republicans in the state Senate were okay with it and sort of limited the potential of progressive legislation in the state. So progressives just despised uh, Cuomo. Um, And I think that's why you saw 
um, some of the such a coalescence of opposition to Cuomo once this news dropped. Because we've seen in other states, in other areas, because of this opposition-centered politics, where, you know, whether it's Northam and Virginia, where, you know, they've been able to hold at bay some of the criticism. But but once this AG report um, uh, dropped, it was uh, everyone left, everyone left the gates. You know, I, I'm like, you know, old school uh, on, on this, it, you know, it's like uncool to like say it. Look, um, in an environment where sex is used to sort of assess your own self-worth and where sex is used as an expression of power and where you have a where you have a culture where no one can say anything about Cuomo being at various places, talking to women, being with other women. The, the only thing the only thing that you could say is if it becomes clear that it was not consensual or that it was harassment, um, that creates an environment where someone like Cuomo abuses things. And so like, this is not like, yes, yes, it would be better to have a system where anything sexual was on the table so long as everyone consented. I don't I don't think that's the, I don't think that's a real world. <laughs> like, I don't think that's a world we, we live in. And so there is like a broader question about like, what are the sexual ethics of our culture? Wherein the, the, the only way that Cuomo could be restrained after all of this is, is an AG report. And women coming forward, like, what if we had a culture where you, where it was just like, hey, you're a you're a grown adult male who who who's in a position of responsibility, you know, maybe maybe you shouldn't be sidling up to to all these women, <laughs> like like whether the, whether it's legal or not, uh, like like maybe part of being in a position of respect is conducting yourself with some level of dignity and respect for others. Whether or not you cross the line or the line moved, I mean, what's clear to me is Cuomo, a, a legal line moved for Cuomo, but Cuomo seems like the kind of person who was always on the wrong side of, of a moral and ethical line when it came to this stuff. So uh, th- that's probably going to like get under some, some people, but I, like, th- look, th- this is, uh, I mean, kind of like we were talking, like you don't press a button with this stuff and everyone operates as they should. We've created a system in which people like Andrew Cuomo can thrive uh, unless sort of the right coalition of forces uh, align against him. Uh, and and we should we should undo that system. Hey, it might be a little bit uncool, Michael, but you hit my amen. Yeah, no, that was that was that was heavy, man. That that was very heavy because we have a culture that says sex isn't a big deal. Do what you want to do. And then it says sex is a very big deal. Right. And then all of a sudden it jumps and says it is a very big deal. It's like you really can't have it both ways. And we put ourselves into these situations and then we don't know what we, we don't know how to fix it. I mean, we've talked about this over and over again. I even talk about it on college campuses where, you know, you let kids 18 and 19 drink and just you promote sex. And then when something bad happens, an 18 or 19 year old makes a mistake, a terrible mistake. That's not OK. Now we're like, oh, my God, this is so well, we set our society through a lack of really having a sexual, a clear sexual ethic sets people up for this situation. And uh, we need to take responsibility for that. That 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 was deep. Uh, Mike. I'm glad you took it there. The other thing that you mentioned that was heavy was the whole uh, Eric Adams conversation, which is a whole like we could have a we might just need to do a whole episode on that conversation in New York. I mean, when you're talking about progressivism and what you know, what goes on with progressivism and where the the roots of that are, you're looking at places like New York City. And then you get a guy like Eric Adams to win the mayor's race there. Uh, they've been taking some L's. And it's interesting because progressives like AOC and um, some of our senators and, and all this stuff have changed the game on how we're looking at some of these policies. But then at the same time, they've also been rejected. So there's a deep conversation to have there as well. And I, I'll let I'll let Chris don't go. And then, uh, Michael, you can end it. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually have to just go back to what what uh, Michael just said on this whole uh, Cuomo thing, because that you you were preaching on that. I mean, we we have to uh, get to some kind of sexual ethic that is something more than do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, as long as everybody says okay. Uh, because when when you stir up those uh, those sort of uh, activities, it's hard to just pump the brakes on it. Um, you know, right away, because it's how you get to a place where, man, you know, 
Cuomo's resigning and, you know, that's probably a good thing. But how much of this is happening in a whole lot of other places where, uh, like Justin said, you know, drinking and sex uh, is mixed up in a bad way. Power and sex is mixed up in a bad way. Uh, so so maybe maybe that's a future church politics thing. Uh, when we do that, we certainly have to have uh, Michael come back. But uh, sure. yeah, this this is this is serious for us as a culture. Take us out, Michael. Well, I mean, it's just it's just good to be back. I've been learning so much from both of you uh, listening to the podcast uh, over the last uh, several months. And uh, look, I mean, this is what this space is for. And this is what it's always been for, which is uh, speaking uh, grounded in our faith to the issues of the day without pretending to be the ultimate authority. That, that's not who we are. We're not God. And, and we don't speak for him unless he's already spoken. Uh, and that's just so mm-hmm. critical in this environment where uh, folks feel compelled to uh, either have a staunch opinion, which no one can tell them nothing about, um, or to feel like they have to be silent and not and not say anything at all. No, like God gave us a mind. Let's try and use it. Let's be humble. And that's a model y'all set uh, uh, every every week on this podcast. And it was it was just a pleasure to join you to talk about you know some really tough topics that that I'm still working through um, uh, very much. So so appreciate it. Awesome, man, man. It was great to have you back. Uh, we're all thinking through this, but hopefully we gave the listeners something to hold on to, a kind of direction to go in, at least some kind of. So some thoughts to to work with. Uh, and that's what we want to do. Give you a framework and give you a foundation for how to think about some of these things as you try to uh, form those opinions. As always, Ann Camp, uh, you know that there's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp. Well, how let This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan Podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.